and welcome along to episode four of Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations for episode four. This is Matt Markin. Matt, episode four, we're four, four deep at this point. Yes, we are all in at this point with Adventures in Advising. Um, it, it really seems like a blink of an eye since we recorded episode one. But I think episode four, we have a really interesting interview talking all about technology, social media, AI. Um, But before we get to that, uh, we probably have a, a couple of housekeeping things to get through. Yeah, so on previous podcasts, we talked about deadlines, and there is one coming up. Uh, we mentioned it before. We'll mention it again for this one. So February 20th is going to be the deadline as a reminder for the Nakata Annual Conference to submit your proposals. So get those in. Yeah, still a couple of days. And something that we mentioned on the last podcast, it hadn't yet happened, was the Super Bowl. And uh, did you did you watch it? I did not watch it. I was doing some other things, uh, so I wasn't able to watch the Super Bowl, but I was keeping in touch with it uh, through uh, social media. So I was following along with what was going on, and I thought the 49ers were going to pull it off, and I was all excited, and I was about to tweet you and say, hey, guess who's going to win? And I am so glad I didn't. Well, I I was excited for you. I thought the 49ers were going to do it. And I did stay up and watch it. And that made the next day exceptionally long. I drank even more coffee than advisors usually do. So you can guess how much I drank. <laughs> so by the time the Super Bowl was over, like what time did you end up going to bed? It ended here at around about about, I think, 20 past three. So by the time I got into bed, it was close on 10 to four. Wow. Trooper. Yeah, that's that's the way it goes. And I, I, I frequently do that with, with Broncos games, but usually they, they so if it's a late game, they start a little bit later. You can kind of get a nap in, but not with the Super Bowl. But hey, you know, it's once a year. We, we get over it. And the fact that, you know, we we were going to be recording an episode this week gave me a bit of an extra bounce in my step. And I think some of the feedback that we have received from people has also given me an extra bounce in my step. Yeah, same here. So if we go to the Twitterverse, um, our friends at Inside Track, uh, they, they sent me a message, a direct message, and I wanted to read it out for the listeners because it was just, it's just amazing to get some, some of this feedback. And so Inside Track put, thanks for putting together and producing Adventures and Advising podcast. We love it, especially the interview with Yvette Barbosa. So they're referring to uh, the first episode that, that, that we did. Um, that was very heartfelt, and you could hear how much she loves her work and how much Nakata means to her. And we look forward to many more episodes. We wholeheartedly agree and believe that everyone has a story. And it's very inspiring to hear the ones you're sharing. So it's it's nice that, and thank you, get Inside Track for that because that's essentially why we started this podcast and why we're continuing it. Because advisors all over the world have stories to share, and you know, it's we want to get those stories out. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's about sharing stories and giving people, I suppose, a platform so they they can share those stories, and. I also have some really nice feedback because 
when you start a podcast, you're always wondering how it's going to be received and particularly by people that you like and respect. And one of those people I'm going to give a shout out to is a lady named Rebecca O'Hare. And Rebecca works in Res Life. And Rebecca uh, tweeted, she gave us a shout out. She promoted episode three. And she said, if you work specifically in the student advising space, there's a lovely new podcast just for you. Created by Cullum and Matt, their recent episode reflects on how advising contributes to transforming the student experience. And I just thought it was really nice that somebody who I really like and admire took the time out to give us a shout out. And I got to know Rebecca via... I suppose, student support, student services on Twitter. She does some really interesting tweets, particularly around conferences, and she really makes an effort to share her learnings from conferences. And that was originally how I got to know her. And then I I was fortunate enough to get some Erasmus funding to go to Manchester last year and to meet up with her. And she showed me uh, around some of the residence halls that she works at. And it was really fantastic experience and it was through Rebecca actually that I got to know our guest uh, for this podcast one Eric Stoller who is a man who is I suppose most well known for his work in terms of technology AI social media and again I I got to know Eric via via social media he has really wonderful kind of Twitter presence and also on LinkedIn. And I thought that he would make a a really interesting person to speak to in relation to technology and advising. Yeah. And it's, it's great how there's always these connections and basically meet one person, get to know them. They connect you with someone else and that's just the the life that that we live, and it's awesome that these things can happen. And speaking of Eric, that's our next interview. So here we go. All right, we got Eric Stoller. Eric is the VP of Digital Strategy at Echo Engage. Eric has a background in student affairs, academic advising, first year experience, digital identity, and if that wasn't enough, wellness, orientation, technology, and communications. Eric is a former academic advisor and web coordinator for the College of Health and Human Sciences at Oregon State University. He served previously as a marketing specialist for student affairs at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He received an AA from Indian Hills Community College, a BA in communications, public relations from the University of Northern Iowa, and an EDM in college student services administration from Oregon State University. Eric, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Well, I mean, that was one heck of a, of a read there, Matt. Thanks for uh, putting me through the, the history books there. Gosh, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Uh, glad to be here. We're delighted to, to have you on board. It's uh, fantastic to have the opportunity to, to talk to you. And uh, you have a wealth of knowledge and experience of the higher ed uh, sector and not only in one country or one continent, but a transcontinental. And I think we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, 
this being the Adventures in Advising podcast, I suppose one of the things that stands out is you do have experience in academic advising. And I'd be very interested in in hearing a little bit more about about that, how you how you got into academic advising and your experiences with it. Sure. So I've, I've got a, uh, I don't know, like a 25 minute story ready to go here for this. Uh, <laughs> but no, the, 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 you know, my, my sort of experience with advising starts off at, uh, just like a lot of students where, you know, their first interaction with someone who's a professional or an administrator, or an institution is with an, it's with an academic advisor. And, you know, when I, when, when I was 18 years old and, and sort of leaving home for the first time, I was really fortunate in that I had an amazing academic advisor at the community college that I attended, and he was just just a wonderful man who, you know, gave me all sorts of insights into you know what I needed to you know in terms of being successful um, at this at this level. And I never you know really sort of said, oh, he, he's my academic advisor. He was just this guy who you know, I sat down you know at his in his office, and he was across from me on his desk. He had his computer, and he was kind of talking me through different options with classes and courses and things like that. And it, it's funny, it's like you know I I've been out of you know university for a long time. I graduated from that community college and uh, ages ago, and and yet I'm still connected with my academic advisor and. Funny story uh, is when I went to graduate school and, my, and did my ed M, I said to everybody, I will never be an academic advisor. I, even though I had this amazing experience as a student, I always thought I, I, I want to be a dean of students or do something with technology. And when I graduated with my higher ed degree uh, from Oregon State, I did a year and a half or so of consulting. And I was, I, I was miserable. I couldn't take it. I was sort of like, I was used to being around colleagues and other people and I was on my own and a friend of mine who was in academic advising. So what, what, why don't you try advising? Apply for this job. And I was like, are you serious? That's the one thing I avoided throughout my entire two years of grad school. And, and she said, yeah, give it a shot. And so I thought, you know what, here's an opportunity for me who's someone who's sort of always been known as the technology aficionado in higher ed to show that you can still talk to students. You can work with students face to face, you know, one after another, after another uh, in, in meetings and, and advising appointments and orientation and whatnot. And so I ended up uh, doing academic advising at Oregon state um, as Matt said in the bio read there for a college that I'm not even sure that it's named that anymore. Uh, but I did it for three years and about a year and a half into it, I said, not really jazzed about our sort of college's web marketing stuff. So I renegotiated my job. And for a while before I left that position, I was actually the web coordinator plus academic advisor for that college. So I was basically doing two different jobs and writing for Inside Higher Ed at that time. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a great experience. I still refer to it all the time, you know, peak advising and, you know, the sort of advising is a tough job. And I think that anybody who's done it knows that, you know, during those, those sort of peaks when everybody's coming at you with lots of uh, questions and, you know, issues and what have you, uh, you really, really start to appreciate uh, those people who advised you before, you know, and so it's almost, it's almost like paying it forward. Definitely. So academic advising, being an advisor, wasn't necessarily something that you sought to do, kind of found yourself in it. Were there any um, specific student populations that that you served as an academic advisor? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I was actually pre-med, which is ironic because I am not a doctor. Uh, and I was also pre-physical therapy, um, 
and, and, and sort of pre OT as well. And so I had all these students that I was working with who needed to take loads of science courses that I never took. And I was having to advise them on, you know, well, here's your physics class and you need to do well. And, you know, here's sort of the sequence required. And, and so it was, it was always uh, sort of interesting for me having to sort of learn that on top of uh, the advising gig, because there's a lot going on in terms of like, um, all the, like the medical school tests and letters of recommendation and internships and hours that students need in terms of shadowing and all the things that they need for applying to medical school. Uh, and when I first got the job, I had no idea, you know, and students were coming into my office and asking me questions. And I was just like, I, let me Google that for you, which became a common phrase. I think, I think if you're advising and you haven't Googled something for students, you're probably doing it wrong. Oh, yeah. It happens every day in my office. If I don't know it, let's Google it and find out. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. I think that's one of the the beauties, though, of of advising is that you're you're always presented with uh, new and interesting uh, situations. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think every single day in advising, you're sort of, you know, you're you're helping with sort of the academic side of things. You're referring people to counseling and wellness and and career services, and you know, doing a bit of life coaching uh, as well. And then you get to do things like presenting at orientation to huge rooms of people, to parents and family members, and you know, transfer students, and and also negotiating with the registrar's office and trying to figure out about you know, can we get another student in this class? Just one more, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think one of the things um, that, you know, there are a number of things that you said there, but one of the things I, I, that I kind of jumped out at me was you and you referred to yourself as being known as the tech aficionado guy. And I'm wondering, is that was that always the case? Was that the case when you were growing up or when you were in university? Were you always into tech um, or or has that been a more recent development? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a bit tech heavy. Tech heavy. I mean, my my first computer that I sort of played around with was a Commodore sixty four that my uncle gave to my mom, and I <laughs> just kind of played around with it. I mean, when you grow up in rural uh, Southeast Iowa, when there's not a lot going on, uh, literally on a gravel road, you 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 know, it's sort of like, what can I do? And um, I always just enjoyed sort of taking apart things that plugged in, which my parents probably didn't exactly enjoy. Uh, But then when I went to grad school, literally, if something used electricity, I was sort of always on call for tech support uh, with my classmates, with my professors. um, And and so I've always enjoyed things like graphic design, audio, video editing, um, and and just tinkering around with with technology. So when you were... um... Working at at Oregon State, so doing both like the academic advising and the web coordinating, was everyone always looking at you as anything that was technology based? They went to you for for the answers. Well, I, I think part of it was, you know, I 
my interest because I, I'm, a, I'm a student success person, right? So at the end of the day, if you're in advising, you, you want students to have the most successful outcomes possible. And if you start to see sort of issues where maybe communication isn't the best that it could be, or maybe the, you know, the website could be oriented in a certain way, or uh, just how things are structured, or in terms of how you, you train and onboard new academic advisors, because there's a lot of knowledge that advisors hold in their heads. How do you get that into various technologies? And so I, I always sort of found myself in an a, sort of advocacy role. Um, in fact, when I was a, an advisor at Oregon State, I remember I did um, this was, I think might be the first uh, ever sort of Nakata technology symposium event where a bunch of us went down to Florida, ironically enough, and we taught things like blogs and wikis and social media. It was very early days. Uh, but at the same time, you know, someone had to do it, I guess. And, and it was... Uh, really sort of showcases how, um, you know, Nakata as an organization for advisors has always tried to be on the, the cutting edge. Yeah, I, I suppose, obviously, um, you know, Nakata is a, an association that's uh, dear to, to both myself and Matt. And um, I'd be interested in, you know, it, we have obviously found it to be a place that's, you know, open to creativity, uh, has a desire for innovation. Uh, and how how did you you know being an advisor? But there there are loads of advisors, and not everyone is involved with Nakata. How did you get involved with Nakata? Yeah, I guess in my career, I sort of have a history of just you know not being shy when it comes to asking the leaders of organizations and associations to see where things go. I mean, I remember when I was in my very first student affairs role doing marketing for the University of Illinois at Chicago. It was marketing within student affairs. And at the time, for Na it was NASPA was the organization I was really affiliated with, which is sort of a larger umbrella student affairs association. And you know, with NASPA, their kind of technology based group, sort of the the knowledge community is what they call them, was gonna was gonna be phased out. It came back later on, but it was gonna be phased out at this time. And I remember I called Kevin Kruger uh, at NASPA, who was then uh, sort of second in command. Uh, Gwen Dungey was. Uh, uh, executive director of the association at the time. And I said to Kevin, I said, you know, what's, what's going on? Why are we, why are you getting rid of this uh, technology knowledge community? I think it was called the information technology knowledge community then. And, you know, I, I kind of go through this whole long spiel uh, and this is all phone based, of course, so he can't see me. And then uh, Kevin says to me over the phone, who are you again? Um, which sort of, you know, began a, a wonderful friendship and he and I, uh, you know, have, have just become close friends over the years uh, having, work together in a variety, variety of capacities. And I think the same thing goes with Nakata. You know, you end up sort of joining forces with like-minded people. And, you know, we're, we're very fortunate. Like Charlie Nutt, uh, he, he's been around uh, since seemingly forever, you know, when it comes to Nakata, in my eyes anyway. And so, you know, Charlie became someone I was very close to and was very much open to let, let's try something new. And we were very fortunate. It was an event that was, uh, I think, very well attended. And then when I started kind of breaking into consulting, uh, that's when, you know, I remember I, I got invited to my first ever paid speaking event when I was a consultant, which is what I used to do before I got this new job with Gecko Engage, um, was the Oklahoma Academic Advising Association's like annual conference and they paid me, I think, like $500, and they put me up in a hotel next to a Bass Pro Shop, and I thought I had made it. I was like, this is the greatest thing ever, and I and I think I had something like 120 slides for 40 minutes of remarks. 
Uh, and it was just ludicrous. I tried to literally talk about everything I could possibly imagine. Uh, learned a lot from that experience. Um, and, and I think it just goes to show you, like, my whole career has been talking about things like digital transformation uh, and new technologies and how they can enhance the student experience in, in sort of in the here and now. So, you know, back in the day, it was the web and then it was, you know, social media and blogs. And now I'm getting more into sort of chatbots and artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'm kind of interested in, you know, you've you've had the opportunity, I suppose, to work in the UK and to work in uh, the States and obviously two very different kind of higher ed worlds. And I'm, I suppose, interested in, in hearing a little bit from you about maybe the differences, the the similarities. What was it like for you to to transplant yourself from the United States to the UK and and to make that transition? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of differences, I think that's a whole nother show in and of itself. I think it's really easy to say, you know, we've got the same language that we're speaking, um, albeit with different accents. Uh, but there's just lots of things in terms of, you know, the meaning of words. Uh, you know, even in this podcast column where I've, I've said courses, uh, and, and I'm thinking in my head thinking, you know, I just said that to an American audience because, uh, a course, you know, over where you're at over in Ireland is, is the major, is the degree. And mm-hmm. so I have to really think about things like that. Um, when, when, Especially now I work for a, a company that's based in Scotland. Ironically, I had to leave the UK after five years, uh, come back to the States, and then begin working remotely for a UK-based company, which I, th- I think is kind of ironic in that. But I, I think in terms of differences, I mean, in many ways, the the professional side of things, the admin side of things is nowhere near as robust um, from a budgetary resource personnel perspective over. Uh, um, now, I'm not going to say the UK column because you're not in the UK, but it's like um, you're very, very close. Um, we are. They're, they're yeah. our next door neighbors. <laughs> um, I've driven between both. Uh, yeah. And so I... I which is funny because they they'll they're like what I can't take your your UK debit card in Ireland which is I'm like really come on uh, but I I think that you know advising for example in, in um, Ireland or the UK it's just not the same you know you might call it tutoring uh, you know there's the there's like UKAT which is sort of uh, this this fairly new advising association that's been kind of helped along by Nakata. Uh, but again, you know, just in terms of resource, budget, personnel, and I think part of it is there are a lot of people going to graduate degrees, you know, in, in higher ed who then go into academic advising. And it's more of a, a, a profession in many ways, whereas it's not so much uh, across the pond. 
Um, and, and that's not a, a values thing. It's just the structurally institutions of higher ed, you know, sort of students aren't necessarily at the center as much uh, in, in Ireland as in the UK as they are in the US. And I think that part of that has to do with the fact that the, the US higher ed sector has been sort of marketized uh, and much more sort of consumer oriented for a long time, uh, just in terms of pricing and how things cost and, and whatnot. And so I think, whereas in the US where you've got a, a massive issues with retention, and it makes sense to have more advisors to help students complete their courses, uh, and there, see, I messed up there. See, I said it like I was like I was in England, for example. But I mean, you, you know, students are trying to complete their degrees in the U.S. And there's a lot of transfer. There's a lot of dropouts. There's just a source stopouts. It's all kinds of stuff. Whereas in the U.K. and in Ireland as well. And Colin, please correct me if I completely mess up. Uh, but people don't really transfer too much. They don't they don't drop out. I mean, you don't have the retention issues in terms of percentage wise anyway uh, that, that they have in the States. Mm-hmm. No, that that I think that's that's very everything you've said is 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 very fair in in many respects, um, and you know I I think that it's really interesting you having worked in both. I mean I suppose I I ran a study abroad program for a number of years, so I have a familiarity with the American model and the American system, but I I didn't work in it myself. I do think you're beginning to see. Uh, sprouts of change in Ireland, particularly in certain institutions, in the way in which uh, students are, are viewed. Um, I, I know certainly in um, DCU, our, our new president, um, I saw him speak and I was really heartened because he talked about putting students at the centre of everything. And that's not always the case. That that that, is, that I think that, that can be true. It, it hasn't always been the case, but I think it's beginning to change, which I think is a positive thing because I think there's nobody more invested in an institution than its students. So it's it's certainly interesting to hear from from you as somebody who has worked in both. And and I agree. Um, in in the, the we could talk for forever and a day probably about the the two systems. And even though we share a common language, I would see there there again are differences between Ireland and the UK. But I I appreciate and thank you for sharing with listeners your experiences of working in the two. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I I think it, it really at the end of the day, if you're a tutor or if you're an advisor, the, the role is fairly similar. You're really trying to help maximize student success. Um, and, and usually, you know, there's just one of you and there are plenty of students. And I think that's where, you know, especially in my role now, it's about sort of how can you you know, amplify your ability to serve and support students. And, you know, that's why I started working for a chatbots company because we realized that, that, you know, as schools become, you know, sort of more advanced with their recruitment efforts and they're bringing in more and more students and, you know, especially in the UK where they, they, they got rid of the enrollment caps where it used to be where enrollment was capped. Uh, it's kind of a free for all. And, and then in the States, it's always about growth and, and recruitment and what have you. I don't think anybody ever thinks from an admissions perspective, Oh, gee, what's this going to do to adv- to advising and advisors and people who are sort of tasked with retention and 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 doing a lot more student support uh, on, in the day to day? And I think, especially also with with like online programs, I mean, who's supporting those students and who's supporting them when you know advisors are asleep? Uh, and that's where you know these new technologies are able to assist and uplift uh, and and really support uh, advising teams. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the the chatbot. So for those that may not know, what exactly is a chatbot and how does that work? I know I just get going and I'm like, yeah, let's just start talking about this. Uh, well, the, the, so chatbots are basically, uh, they're not so new in terms of technologies. They've been around since like 60s and 70s and sort of early days. Now, the quality is, uh, has improved tremendously over the years, but they're, they're artificial intelligence uh, that, that uses machine learning and a bit of natural language processing. And what that means is uh, people can ask it a question just like they would a person, and it can respond in a very conversational way. You may have seen these sort of on the bottom right of a website if you're on a desktop, or it might just pop up on your mobile device. Uh, and a lot of times they'll have sort of a, a catchy name, usually like an institutional mascot uh, that says right away, hey, I'm not a person, uh, just in case you were curious. Uh, and then you can kind of get as much information as, as sort of has been presented and taught to the bot. Most of these bots kind of learn on an ongoing basis. Uh, and, and I think one of the nice things of them is that, you know, if a student asks a ton of sort of the repetitive, non-complex questions that advisors get asked thousands of times, you know, Matt, you said you you Google at least, you know, once a day or what have you in the office. Right. And I think that's where chatbots are perfectly situated to sort of make sure that advisors have high quality conversations with students while the chatbot handles the quantity of, of basic, you know, easy to answer questions. Uh, and then if it can't get it right, if it doesn't know the answer, and let's say it's two in the morning on a Saturday and, and you, you guys aren't working because, you know, you like to have a little bit of a rest and the chatbot can then say, okay, a person will contact you on Monday morning because you gave us your email address, you gave us your phone number and you gave us your name and we'll be in touch. And I think the other side of that, too, is it also provides advisors with information on what the bot doesn't know, so it can be fed into it for the next time. And then it can also tell advisors, these are the key questions that students are having that they just keep asking us. So why aren't we putting more of this information into induction and an orientation or in first year experience uh, and onboarding new students? You know, why isn't this information easily found on our website somewhere else? Or maybe it's the process that's confusing. Because I got to tell you, I mean, when you're working in the U.S. with credits and transferring and and a billion different departments that that if you're a student coming in, a lot of this isn't because you know, you're not up to the task. It's just, you don't know what things are called. And so, and you might feel embarrassed. I mean, how many times have you had a student come in, ask a question and sort of ask it meekly because they just thought, well, I don't want to ask this question. And I think those are the perfect kind of questions for things like chatbots because a chatbot doesn't care, right? It doesn't have a bad day. It doesn't get sick. Uh, it, it gives consistent information, which I think from an advisor's perspective is great because let's be honest, not all advisors are equal. Um, you, you two are smiling. I see you on camera uh, and and you know what I'm saying. So I think uh, that's a, just sort of a little bit of an introduction to chatbots and advising. That's yeah. Thank you for that. I, that's a really good explainer, I think, for people. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate, um, you know, and say to you uh, if like I think some people may have concerns around chatbots replacing advisors. Right. Like Terminators. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's funny because every single technology that comes out, if give me a dollar for an every time an academic advisor said, well, it's going to take my job. I mean, they were really worried about the fax machine. They were really worried about, you know, the IBM, like really fancy typewriter when it came out. You know, it's sort of like 
as technologies increase and, and sort of get better over the years, I think advising as a culture has always said, okay, we are face-to-face, -face, we are one-to-one, -one, and any new technology that comes out is to be feared rather than seeing it as a partner or as something to enhance the work. And I think that's a huge part of it. I think where the chatbot's not replacing anybody. It's just allowing you to have deeper, uh, higher quality qu uh, answers and conversations to students. Because you think about it, if you're, let's see, it's like peak advising time, you're seeing students like triage in a sense, right? It's like A&E. And for, for Matt, that's like emergency room. Uh, and, and, and you're seeing students one after another, boom, 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 boom. And let's say 25% of those students that come in are asking really basic questions that they that they can do with the bot so easily right and and they just get on the phone they're waiting in the hallway for that that meeting with you and they're on the with the chat bot they get the information they need and then you see in the next student instead of that one that just found the information on the chat bot and you're actually able to help them in a really meaningful way because their question was very complex and it required you to do a lot of sort of heavy lifting well, I was going to say that um, just as an example would be if departments have like a an email address on their website and students are sending you know the same questions potentially or questions that could easily be answered, then the chatbot might be able to just go ahead and answer that. And that avoids the uh, advisor, whoever's in charge of answering those emails to get all those. And maybe they're just answering back the very specific complex uh, questions. Exactly. I mean, because every advisor has had those moments where they go, I don't know the answer to that. Let me get back to you. And it requires you to sort of like huddle up with some of your colleagues and figure it out. And I think those are the questions where obviously at the moment, a chatbot's not going to get it. But you answer those basic questions, those repetitive ones, sort of general stuff. And, and it's great because, again, the, the bots can live on any platform too. So, you know, it's not that they have to be uh, on the web or, you know, they, they can live on the, on social media through Facebook messenger on WhatsApp. They can be through text message. You know, you really are reaching students where they are uh, 24, seven, 365. Uh, and, you know, when I was an advisor, I was working with a lot of international students, you know, prospective students who were thinking about, you know, joining our program and, Obviously, I'm going to sleep, you know, and I'm not working all day long. And so something like a chatbot would just there's so many different ways in which it would enhance not only the student experience, but the experience for advisors and, and sort of as, as part of the advising toolkit, it's going to make things much easier for academic advisors in the long run. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was definitely being a little bit of devil's advocate there because I can personally see the the benefit that chatbots would would bring because they're especially at the you know at peak times during the semester or throughout the year where you know you can be hit by a tsunami of the same question and students understandably sometimes they you know they don't always necessarily take it from a website they want to they want to have an individual piece but they are willing to, in my experience, accept the information if it does come from a chatbot. But they want somebody to to offer, you know, reassurance rather than just reading it themselves. And I think that can be a way of of freeing up a, a lot of space for an advisor. So it allows you to actually focus on, you know, more serious cases or to also to plan, because it's at that time of the year where you're 
constantly swamped and you just don't have the headspace um you can't see the the trees or the woods and you're you're reacting um to things rather than being proactive yeah yeah when i think about you know matt i was thinking about how you know are you all texting students yet you know have students said i want to be text you know sms me you know whatever they, you know and i think that's that's one of those things where, you know, you got to communicate with students where they are. And if it's, you know, in your case, through text messaging, uh, you know, the bot's just going to text you back and forth. Bam, there you go. And if, you know, if it's column, for example, you call them, if you go into a classroom at your institution and you say, how many, how many of you use WhatsApp? Everybody's going to raise their hand. And if you say, okay, hey, guess what? Here's our new chat bot for advising. And it lives within WhatsApp. It'll help answer your questions. And students get to be on the platform where they're already at, right? You're not sort of creating some other service or tool where students have to figure it out in a place where they've never been before. They're already there. I think that's huge. I think no matter what phase you're at with students or with anyone, because it's not always just students. I, I, I do think sometimes we we say things about uh, students. Oh, students are always on their phones. Everyone's always on their phones. And we all prefer to be in a place where we're comfortable. So if, if you're going to make people go and sign up to some new platform that they're not familiar with, it's it's much more difficult to pe- to get people to do that. Where if you can... I think that's the key phrase there, Eric. Meet people where they're at. It makes such a difference to the student experience, to the user experience, to everyone's experience. And I, I really think that the experience is is key right now because there is there's lots of knowledge available out there, but it is to make it to to personalize it and to make people feel like they are are listened to. And I think you know, to to provide, there's no way we're going to be, advisors are going to be able to answer every single question for every single student. So where what's the best way uh, that we can resource this, that we can make sure that, you know, the different needs of students are met. If it's in the uh, the US where, where you're talking about retention um, or if it's in the UK and Ireland where, the you know, it might be uh, a little bit different. But how can we best go about this? And I do think that's where technology can, can really assist us. Well, I think, you know, it's just like anything. It just keeps evolving. You know, when 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 I was initially doing academic advising, it was all paper-based. You know, it was all, we had files, we'd open them up and there'd be notes inside. And I, I write unbelievably bad. Uh, and, and, you know, trying to read my own notes was difficult enough, let alone someone else trying to read those notes. And I think that's where, you know, the sort of culture of academic advising as a profession um, needs to just embrace technology as a partner, as part of sort of the process of this is how we we amplify the jobs that we're here to do, rather than think about how you know how could this take something away or have a culture of fear, which I think it it, it makes total sense, right? That's sort of been the the attitudes in a lot of different spaces within HE, uh, and again, it's about this helps you and it makes things easier and. Yeah, it's it's up to you to, to sort of figure out how you use it and implement it in a way where you feel comfortable with it. You don't think you your writing's bad. You haven't seen mine, so I don't think you want to. It's funny, exactly, because I write like a doctor, you know, or, or a wannabe doctor. But it's, you know, I it's funny because I remember part of this was I was always just never had enough time. And I wanted to write sort of rich <laughs> notes uh, about sort of the, what students were bringing up and the questions they had and sort of their progression. And, and I was trying to write as fast as I possibly could. I got so 
sort of uh, into it where I, I was saying to uh, sort of the director of the office, I was saying, these are the only pens that I can write with because they're faster than the other pens. And, 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 and that's sort of like there's new technologies now where advisors actually can sort of access things and students can access things on the web or on mobile. And, and I think that's, again, where it, it's a combination of, of people plus technology equals student success. Yeah, and speaking of like students, uh, there's there's always social media and things that are ever changing. Um, and then tied to that, it's you know digital identity. Um, could you tell us more exactly about what you de- how you define digital identity and why that's important to to students especially? Yeah, and it's it's a bit of a different angle. I think digital identity. You know, in my own head, it's evolved over the years. Uh, it used to be sort of, you know, your brand was the language that I was using uh, a, a while ago, uh, and, and now it's sort of just about who you are, um, just as a whole, sort of encapsulation of your person, right? Because I don't believe in this sort of separation of there's you in person, brick and mortar, uh, flesh and blood, and then there's you uh, online in a digital environment and you're two separate uh, things. I think you're really just, there's just one you. And I think your digital identity has to be representative of the fact that if I meet you in real life and you're amazing and I look at your stuff on social media and it's not so much the same in alignment, um, you know, that that's a that's a, a very powerful disconnect. And so whenever I work with students, I think about the, the sort of what self are you putting out there uh, for uh, your cl- your peers, your your you know professors, the people who are mentoring you, uh, the people you're mentoring, like say you're a peer mentor, uh, and then once you graduate from an employability perspective uh, as well, um, I think that that's where with advisors especially there's this. Uh, you know, while we're not in a career services department, we do a lot of careers advising. Uh, and it's just, it's just natural, I think, in terms of what advisors have to do. When you say advising is teaching, that's sort of the mantra in the U.S. Part of that is what happens beyond the classroom and beyond the institution. And I think when it comes to social media and someone's digital identity, uh, it's about figuring out, okay, what is it you're trying to accomplish later on in terms of, hey, I need to be on LinkedIn now and building my profile out and learning how this platform really works. Or, you know, I'm not going to post a ton of stuff on Twitter, but I'm going to use it intelligently to network and connect with people uh, who I I should know and and I'm interested in. Uh, And so, you know, look at Instagram and, you know, there's this sort of pervasiveness of of people having multiple accounts, uh, you know, like Finstas and all that. And I think it's fascinating to see how it's evolved. And, you know, and then Snapchat used to be the, the sort of social media app that we would all kind of lambast and, and that's shifted a bit. And, and Instagram has sort of taken all of that functionality in many ways. And now we've got TikTok. Uh, and, you know, one of my favorite TikToks is actually a University of Limerick uh, column, you know, shout out to Ireland. And, you know, I, I think that's where, uh, you know, Will we laugh at these platforms now? Some of them, anyway, like TikTok, right? It's kind of silly, it's kind of fun. But personally, I don't find anything wrong with silliness or fun. But the the perception, I think, is that these platforms have no value. Uh, and I think, especially from a digital identity perspective, and I think at the end of the day, we said the same things about Facebook, we said the same things about Twitter, we said the same things about this or that, and it just seems like the natural evolution is, you know, what there are already people who are in their teens who are literally making a career out of being on something like TikTok uh, and bash them all you want, but they're, they're doing it. So uh, it, it still very much matters. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, yeah, delighted that you, you know, you, you recognize what Limerick are doing because certainly um, I 
I too, um, and big shout out, I think Tony Sheridan is the guy who runs their social media and they've done a phenomenal job. And I think to me, what stands out for what Limerick are doing and in terms of, I think, digital identity brand, everything you've um, been speaking about is totally accurate. And one of the things I think it ties into right now is around authenticity absolutely i mean people have to be themselves right if the, and students will, will see that immediately um you know i think when it comes to academic advising departments sometimes there's this there's choice right students can choose who they want to talk to um and i think you know they can they can figure out right away who they want to see uh, over and over again uh but I, by the way before i forget i also want to make mention of the fact that you know in addition to this digital identity uh, piece uh, and and really related to it is this sense of digital literacy or digital fluency. And I think that, you know, one of the, the things that I did a lot of when I was doing my speaking and consulting work before I started with Gecko uh, in the UK in particular was how digital literacy and digital fluency uh, was just sort of floating around. You know, there was not a lot of ownership at the, at a departmental level, at a, at a level that was structured at an organ, at an institution. And I think over time, it'll be interesting to see if that changes because I mean, how many times have you, you guys as academic advisors talked with students and had to really sort of walk them through uh, sort of things that related to digital literacy first before they could actually get to whatever they were trying to accomplish. You know, it, it happens over and over again, right? I, I mean, how many times you, you talk to, you know, Matt, you know, you, you see a senior, you know, and they're, or, and they're, let's say they're a 50 year senior, they're fairly close to graduation, maybe, hopefully. Uh, and, and they go, yeah, I don't even know how to do this. And it's something within the student information system. Um, and, and you go, how have you made it this far without knowing these basic sort of utility and functionality pieces. Yeah, and I, I think it happens quite a bit. And then you realize that somehow they got through it or someone helped them with it and they just made it through and now they're going to be graduating. Yeah, exactly. And, and you always think about those missed opportunities, or at least that's, I think for me, that's what I think about. I mean, I think... <sighs> Obviously, you guys know that I'm, I'm sort of like the chatbot evangelist full time. And I, I always think about how a, a chatbot can sort of ease those sort of pain points and ease those those missed opportunities. And so, you know, you think about orientation. How many pieces of paper do students get? How many lectures do they sit in, to, you know, presentations do they have to sit in? And they just start to forget things. And there's all this onboarding that happens. And, and like IT help desk, it just bombarded by things all the time. And I think about how artificial intelligence can sort of help, you know, span these, these gaps or help, you know, plug these holes where students are falling through the cracks because they, they just never, it never stuck or they, you know, life happens and they were too busy or, you know, they were working afterwards and they forgot everything. And so then you think, okay, Hey, they're on their mobile, they're on their phone. They ask this question. There's the answer. It's so much easier. Yeah, no, I, I, I think one of the things that jumped out to me there, Eric, was, and Matt and I have discussed this, and one of the things I, I think that's we where we miss out on is uh, around what we would call, you know, the we, we put a lot of emphasis on the first years, on, on the, the, the freshman students. Um, but when they move into what we would call second year, um, they, you know, they, they, they've gotten, a, a, you know, a, a huge amount of information, particularly in the early part of first year. Um, they go through the academic year, then they go away for a summer, then they come back and they're expected to, you know, know everything as if they never left. And I think that's where technology could be really useful 
in having a kind of a reorientation or a, a refresher program, as we'd probably call it yep. over here. I think that could be because, again, you, you advisors don't have the capacity to take on that sort of a second, you know, a second year orientation. But I, I do think that, you know, students can a lot of students can need that. Like you, you get one library tour maybe at, at the beginning of your first year and certainly you know how how many first years really use the full capacity of a library and and that that's it very often and unless unless you're a brave enough student to you know go up to the desk and to ask but not every student is going to do that so technology um you know uh, ai chatbots virtual tours they could all make a real difference to the student experience when i think regardless of what you think about maybe the sort of scholarly research around nudging and you know nudge nudge technology or sort of that philosophy i think about how advisors can proactively use tech to nudge students you know column you're saying about the year two students being able to nudge students periodically via sms or through a whatsapp message that lives in a, in a sort of ai driven chatbot means that you can then you know just kind of ping them ever so gently essentially and say here's some more information coming up and things change too uh, because how many times have you heard a student come into your office and say, one, I never got the email or I didn't read it. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of times it's not the student's fault because sometimes we, we get carried away and we, we write a, a 17 bullet point, you know, equivalent to war and peace email and then kick it off to students and go, well, why didn't you read, you know, bullet point seven part B? I mean, why didn't you see? And, and so I think there's expectations there where, you know, if you can use tech mm -hmm. to proactively nudge students in a way in which they're very familiar. I mean, I think there's some really mm -hmm. great stats and I unfortunately don't have them off the top of my head, but around how people will pay much closer attention to a text message uh, than almost anything else. I think it's also, um, yeah, if you think of just even a, a college bulletin, it has all the policies, procedures in there. And yet we expect students to know everything that's in there because it's written somewhere in writing or online, but they may not know about it or they're not going to take the time to go through it. But if you think of like orientation, you know, kind of what we're saying too, it's a lot of orientations might be one or two days and they get a lot of information dumped on them. And then we expect them to still remember everything when they start school a month or two later. Yeah. And I think, I think the orientation process too, especially if you're going through a registration process during orientation, it can be very stressful uh, for students. I mean, I, I, I always felt sort of the anxiety that students carried into that process with them, especially as the, you know, for a, in a U.S. context, so sorry, Colin, but in a, a sort of like summer orientation program where students were registering, you know, if they came to a, a, a later in the summer program and, and there were fewer classes available and it makes it harder in terms of trying to figure out the schematics of what their, their schedule might look like, you know, that's a lot of anxiety that means you're not going to remember anything else that you're told. It's just going to go, it's just going to vanish. And then I think during the course of the year, you know, advisors kind of have to carry that burden, uh, you know, and shoulder that responsibility of what happens during orientation, you know, then comes back how many, like tenfold onto advisors. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I think again, I, I'm thinking of my own self and when, you know, your how how much I rely having you know I've moved institutions a few times on SOPs and 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 referring back and 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 being able to check things and 
for students, they don't always have, you know, clear access to that sort of material. Um, they're given it once and then it the only place they know to go sometimes is to their advisor. So, yeah, I think there's a huge amount of, of truth in in what you're you're saying, Eric, and how technology could be used to ease the burden, not just on students, but on advisors as well. Exactly. So like the, the sort of like fear of, oh, is it going to take my job or is it going to, you know, take people out of the equation? It's the complete opposite. You know, I think you're going to see more and more people who are in, in sort of, I saw a great quote the other day and it was sort of like, that, that there's so many jobs today, they're going to go away, but it's those jobs of the future that come in to replace those roles. So it's not like, you know, the jobs go away and there's nothing. It's that there's actually new roles, new jobs, new responsibilities. It's just like my role when I had a joint web sort of marketing and comms job whilst also being an academic advisor. That's a very different kind of position. But you think about hybridized roles and, and sort of future roles, there's going to be a lot more technology in there. I mean, you think about the academic advisor who never sees a student face-to-face and is online only, and, and their job is to serve students who are distributed around the globe and how technology can help that academic advisor serve students all the time. I mean, there's only one advisor, but there's all sorts of technologies that help that advisor answer thousands of questions. Yeah, most definitely. And this has been a very interesting, engaging topic to talk about, various things that that we did. And thank you so much, Eric. And we'd love to have you on for a future podcast if you're interested. (laughs) Of course, of course. Always ready. Thanks, guys. Yeah. I I think there's I think there's yeah there's so much that we we have still to to discuss and it has been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. I I would encourage listeners to if you're not already uh following Eric on uh the various social media platforms definitely check him out. He he's a guy who uh posts really interesting things and i think one of the things uh just briefly is you're prepared to break a little bit with convention which i think i have learned a lot from i remember when um so you know you retweeted your your own tweet and somebody kind of said whoa whoa, what's going on here you can't do that and you explained the the rationale behind it and yeah i i think that we could all learn a little bit more from that I think my my quote on that was, and I said this at the University of Michigan a few weeks ago. I said, if if you're not self retweeting, do do you even Twitter? <laughs> well, I think there, there there's there's that uh, you know amongst all of the wonderful nuggets that we've had in the the last fifty or so minutes, there's a real practical piece that that everyone can take <laughs> from this. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, I think to have the opportunity to have a chat to Eric and I found that fascinating. I thought he offered amazing insights. I think that we probably could have spoken for another hour. I think we definitely should have him back for a future episode. Thanks to him again for taking the time. I really think any listeners are, are going to take a lot away from that. And I think, uh, Matt, we it's not just going to end with Eric on this episode. I believe there might be one or two bonus uh, interviews. 
Yeah, and and thanks again for Eric for for joining us for that podcast and uh, for that interview, and definitely look forward to having him on again. And yes, just like you said, we do actually have some bonus interviews for you all. And um, while I'm here at CUCUSB, I was able to chat with a couple people that I thought would be great for this podcast to share their story. So the first one up is from Deborah Parsons. Uh, she works for the College of Social Behavioral Sciences. She's an assistant uh, dean in the College of Social Behavioral Sciences. She's someone that I've actually known uh, for many years, and I was actually a student of hers uh, for her Criminal Justice 101 intro class back in 2006. And the one thing she taught me in her class that I'll always remember uh, for criminal justice was that for every rule or every law, there's always an exception. And that is something that I've taken with me through my time working in the admissions office and the last now seven years uh, working, or almost seven years, working as an academic advisor when working with students. So in this interview, uh, Deborah Parsons talks about how the advising landscape has changed at CSUSB through the years, her time in law enforcement, and how that has helped her in teaching, as well as her path in education, and also the time that she met Prince. So here we go. I think this will be a fun interview. I got some questions to ask you. So one is you've worked at Cal State San Bernardino for a few years now. Right. How has like the advising landscape changed from when you started to now? Well, that's a very interesting question. And um, I can tell you that it has changed remarkably. First of all, one of the things that um, I came from a university where uh, – we did have an advising staff. So when I first came here, uh, I had um, all these students lined outside my office and I asked them, what are you doing here? And they said, oh, we're here for uh, advising. And I said, well, go to your advisor. And they go, no, you are our advisor. And I went, oh no, I can't be. <laughs> so I, um, I realized that I, the faculty do the advising here, and I wasn't really prepared for that. Uh, I was more interested in, of course, being a first-time professor and teaching and research. I had no idea about the advising. So I started um, getting into the advising, and I really enjoyed it. And so um, I would volunteer. for. We had orientations that were like one day. And it was for freshmen only. It wasn't for transfer. And so I would volunteer my Saturday to come in and um, meet with students. And I'd have my bulletin of, of um, the, uh, um, you know, the, the Cal State bulletin. And I'd have my schedule of classes. And I'd sit down with students who came in for advising. And I really messed them up. I doubt that. <laughs> well, you would, you'd be surprised. I knew nothing about, um, I mean, even though I had been through so many years of um, the bachelor's program, master's program, and uh, doctorate program, I didn't really know about general education or uh, the policies and things like that. Over the course of the years, of course, I've learned more about um how to advise students properly. But it, in the beginning, it was just sort of hit and miss. And I didn't even know really the curriculum of my department. I just knew what I taught. 
<laughs> so, you know, you can see how unprepared we were for, um, I think, faculty. Some of them probably did it well. Some, some of them didn't. But back in 2014, uh, we... Uh, decided to hire five academic advisors, um, professional advisors for the college colleges, and what it what we discovered was that um, every college um, could benefit from having somebody who was professionally trained as an advisor, and it was so helpful. And I I, I didn't realize it was a thing, you know. And when I saw how great they advised. I was amazed at the information and the theory behind it and everything. So during that time, we there was a lot of controversy, a lot of pushback on advising and having professional advisors. And so that was part of the um, part of the issue is whether faculty could give up that role. But I saw these young people did it much better than than we did, uh, because they actually learned how to do it and went to school for it. So we've, from that time, we've really developed, I have now have a team of advisors working for me. And um, we really uh, want to touch every single student and be able to help every single student and not have them fall through the cracks. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's definitely changed a lot. And, you know, now even with staff advisors, professional advisors, we have advisor training for them and we have advising institutes for them and totally different than what it was just a few years ago. Right. And I wish that had been available for me as a faculty advisor. That would have been so helpful. <laughs> And, and, but it's always that, that learning curve too. And ultimately you figured out a way to learn the information trial, you know, yeah. trial and error. Yeah. Um, now as an administrator, um, a lot of times I hear administrators say how they miss the teaching or they miss the students. Uh, they lose out on that student interaction, but as assistant Dean, you've actually found a way to still have some type of student connection. How did you work that out? My role is, uh, assistant Dean of Student Success for the college. So my actual role is handling all student issues in the college. And uh, I meet with students on a regular basis. I think the difference, of course, is the fact that in teaching, you develop relationships during the quarter or the term, because um, we're moving to semesters, but uh, we develop relationships and we those can be lasting relationships. The role I'm in now is more um, problem solving, facilitating um, some kind of solution for a student. Um, I don't really see students on a regular basis. Some students do call me and say, thank you very much. Um, I've received cards and, and things like that. But to the mo mostly the difference is that I'm handling student issues full time. And um, I've learned to uh, really appreciate all the different um, students and their, their um, you know, helping with their, their path and showing them that, hey, it's not always a perfect path. You know, you sometimes have to take time off or you sometimes pick the wrong major or you have trouble in a class or whatever. So I like I, that's the part I love. So it, I've moved away from the teaching role, but in a way, I'm still teaching. And I'm, it's not about the content of my PhD, which was criminal justice or criminology, um, but it's more about, um, 
you know, the human aspect of it and really connecting with students on that level. Absolutely. And and teaching happens in many different ways. And you've actually been a faculty member for about 25 years now. And also, uh, you were in law enforcement. Yes. So how has law enforcement maybe helped you in your teaching? Well, I could say that when I was teaching uh, in the classroom, uh, which was about five years ago now, um, the the students really um, liked the fact that I had experience in the field. And so I had credibility with the students. They understood that I've been there, done that. And um, I had lots of stories for them, you know. And I know some of those. <laughs> My stories were always um, about, you know, the the job and um it, it was exciting for these students that want to get into law enforcement get into law get into working in the prison system or the corrections or whatever um i think i was able to give them that real world world experience and i think that that is one of the things that i was able to bring into teaching but also um I think it helped me with um, being a little bit more um, disciplined. Uh, I was I was fun in the classroom, but I also had a sense of discipline, um, and I think students also appreciated that part of it too. And now, in my role now, I think the police experience has very helped me immensely. Um, for one reason, um, I'm constantly mediating and negotiating with faculty and students and I work problems out and it's the same thing I kind of did in the field um, helping people solve their problems and um, I can't solve it for them but helping them think of ways I always start off with a student is how would you like to handle this how would you resolve this so that it makes them think and critically think about what how they want to do things and and sometimes they say I want the professor fired well that's not going to happen so let's come up with a, a solution together what can we do and so we you know we work things out and I did that in the field um, as a police officer and I think that's what made me successful there as well so last question would be what is your biggest takeaway from your career so, um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I came into academia to teach and I love um, criminology and, and the subject matter. But what I learned along the way is that really isn't about the subject. It's about um, the human contact that I have. And I think that's what made me successful in the classroom was because I really cared more about the students than I cared about the content of what I was teaching. I, I think they enjoyed what I was teaching because I I was engaged with them and they were engaged with me. And I think my takeaway is that the role I'm in, um, I've always been in this role, really, it's really guiding students, mentoring students uh, to find their pathway. I started late. I went to five different community colleges. I uh, finally ended in law enforcement. And then I decided I wanted to go back to school and get my degrees. And so I did that. And so my pathway was sort of late and long. I didn't receive my PhD till I was 40. Um, and I think from there, I've had a, a very great 
career in just doing exactly what I, I love to do, which is to interact and engage with students and help them find their pathway. So I thought that was gonna be the last question, but last, last question. Last question. You used to work for Prince or had something to do with, oh, with Prince. Oh, well, no, wait a minute. Um, I worked at the Fabulous Forum when it was the Fabulous Forum, and then it was the Great Western Forum. And so I worked with um, a lot of groups. Um, you know, I worked with them backstage, and I got to meet a lot of famous people. I mean, Kiss, um, Rod Stewart, um, you name it, I, I met them. And um, I did a lot of backstage, um, you know, a lot of the things that um, I worked on was really before the concert. So I did go to a lot of the after concert things. And, and um, yes, Prince did ask me out. I was in my 20s. And um, it was, I, that is also where I became interested in police work. I was always interested, more interested in what the police were doing, the crowd control and things like that. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I don't know why I thought that was more interesting than being famous, but. Um, <laughs> Everyone's different. <laughs> yeah, everybody's different. But um, so one time I was ha eating my lunch in my car uh, at um, and a police officer came by and he started talking to me and, um, you know, we were just chatting and all of a sudden he got a call for a 927D and I went, what's that? And he goes, a dead body. Oh, I just had to be a police officer then. I <laughs> it was so much more interesting than eating my lunch in the parking lot at the forum. <laughs> that sealed the deal. Yeah, that sealed the deal. <laughs> so yeah, I I decided that um, I had to get into law enforcement because I wanted to be the one at the scene. And ever since then, I've made a scene. <laughs> I knew we were going to have at least one of these moments. <laughs> this is usually how it is in meetings, which is why I love Dr. Parsons. That is true. But, you know, um, that's why the students love me, too. In fact, I was reading on Rape My Professor. A student said, I, I missed my, my um, calling. I should have been a comedian. And I thought, no, I didn't miss my calling. I've got an audience. <laughs> Wow, what a what a fantastic uh, Prince anecdote Deborah had. Uh, what does the next interview hold in store, Matt? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And she's she's someone I think you would get totally you would get along with right away. She's super funny, and I would love for you to meet her. Um, the next one we have is a, a good a buddy of mine. His name's Michael Harrison. He's actually someone that started out as my student assistant in admissions way back when in 2004. And now today we actually work in the same office as academic advisors. So it's been great to see Michael start out from a student to staff, you know, to now working as an academic advisor here in the same office. So in this interview, he talks about what college and specifically CSUSB means to him, what he's learned from attending uh, academic advising conferences such as Nakata and incorporating his hobbies into academic advising. So take a listen. Michael, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful, thanks. And since we are at Cal State San Bernardino, where we work for a very long time, 
you've been a student, you've been an admissions recruiter, admissions counselor, you've been right now an academic advisor. So you've done a lot, a lot of different perspectives. What does Cal State San Bernardino mean to you? Uh, well, it's it's meant so many different things. So it's been in a place of, of learning for me, whether it's learning in the classroom, going in the library, reading books in the, in the library. Um, it's been a, a, play, a social place, um, you know, going getting a chance to go to events, whether it's open mic nights um, or different kinds of any, any of the fun events that they have on campus, game nights, things of that nature. And then it's been a place of business and a place of work. So from being a student, being a tour guide, introducing people to the campus and then being a recruiter where now you're out in the community going to talk to people about the opportunities here. So I've had the opportunity to experience it as a student, but then also promote it and uh, sell it. And then as an academic advisor to guide people through it as they're getting toward graduation. So I've had a lot of different relationships with it, but uh, it's, it's been so much to me since, cause I've been here since 2004. So it's, it's definitely been a lot for me. Yeah, and I feel like for both of us, we've grown up here at this university. Um, and I've definitely got to see you grow because little known fact is uh, Michael used to be my student assistant back in the day when we worked in admissions. And now we get to work as colleagues together here in advising academic services at Cal State San Bernardino, working as academic advisors. And something we've also gotten to do together is attend many conferences um, and gotten to present together a lot. And let me ask you that about conferences. So, I mean, you've attended conferences, you've presented is there anything that you've learned from from attending conferences that uh, maybe others could uh, gain knowledge from you on? Yeah, I, th I think uh, when you attend a conference, especially if you're presenting, you are, uh, well, you know, for me, nervous uh, about the information that you're going to present. And you know that you know the information, but then how will it be received? Um, and sometimes you know the information, but you're not sure that you know. And so it gives you confidence to be able to speak on behalf of your experiences, what you've done, what's worked for your campus, and how that can benefit others. And then also just from sitting in um, workshops with other advisors around the world um, and around the country hearing their experiences and a lot of times you're just you know in between workshops you're actually gaining useful information uh, best practices things that you can think about but then when you are outside of the comp, uh, the the workshops now you have a chance to actually sit there and dialogue with people and you realize that we share a lot of the same experiences across the globe and so we've been able to take uh, a few things from conferences and bring them back to our own campus and then others have uh, reached out to you know us uh, to find out about some of the information that we presented on that they felt like they could use so i think it's it's a good way to develop relationships uh, across the campuses when you see somebody again that you saw at a previous conference you can strike up conversations so um, it's it's definitely a wonderful experience to be able to attend and it can be nerve-wracking to present but once you're in the mode of presenting you start talking to people it, it's a wonderful experience too yeah definitely the, the networking piece is, is amazing uh, getting to attend conferences multiple times see the same people um, Speaking of being nervous, I mean, you've seen me at my worst being nervous of uh, getting ready for uh, a presentation, but also once you're done with it, it's like, oh, it, it's over. Yes. All that preparation time is, is definitely worth it. Um, so kind of coming back to Cal State San Bernardino and what you do here as an advisor, outside of this, you you do a lot, have a lot of different projects that you work on. Um, I mean, you, you, you draw, you, you're a photographer. Um, how do you, have you been able to incorporate that into your, your academic advising or what you do here as an advisor? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, just from on a very, very practical level, when it comes to photography, I've had the opportunity to photograph a few events on campus, so smaller events that we've that we've had that I've been invited to, um, whether it's our uh, annual uh, Coyote Advising uh, academic fair that we have or a few of the smaller graduation ceremonies. So there's been that opportunity networking with people, knowing what I do. Um, I write. Um, as you know, I like to draw. And I think a lot of that uh, helps uh, when relating to students. So when students come in and uh, students are in that place where they're trying to figure out what it is that they want to do, knowing that I can have a career and then also still do the things that I'm interested in, whether they're interested in the arts or whatever it may be that they're interested in. And then people connect with you. Like for yourself, you have, you know, your office. Uh, when people come in, they can connect with you that way. I think having um, outside things that you do also allows you to connect with students um, and let them know that they can do it too. Very nice. And um, behind us, uh, we have quite a few pins on this board. And actually, there's one up there that uh, Michael did the artwork for that we were able to create a pin for students for our finals week encouragement event. Um, it said the eat, sleep, study, repeat. And it was a, a drawing of um, like a cartoonish drawing of one of our uh, staff members here, Lachey. So shout out to Lachey and all the work that you do here at this university and in our office. But um, it's nice that uh, something that um, you do, some that, that are for fun as a hobby, we're able to incorporate that and also things that, 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 that you do more than a hobby, you're able to incorporate as well into your work here. And um, I think it's been, been great and it's been awesome working with you all these years. <laughs> Probably wrap it up because I know it's peak registration time. We got some more appointments that we got to get done, but want to squeeze some time in today so we can knock this one out. And Michael, appreciate it. That guy has like proper presence. Oh, absolutely. Um, he's he's a natural. Um, I'm always in awe every time he he does anything in, in any of the advising videos that, that 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 he joins in on. Yeah, I mean, he he stood out to me. He stood out to other people who watched the videos. People have commented that. Yeah, that guy. So, um, I mean, let uh, let's continue to to have him appear in our videos. And thanks to him for a really interesting, insightful interview. Oh, absolutely. He is more than willing to, to be in any of the videos that, that we do. And um, he's he's just an awesome person. And he's he's one of the, the best things that that's happened to me in terms of his growth here at the university and just getting to watch him see, you know, watch him do what he does. And he teaches me a lot as well. I think I need to get myself to California for a visit. Yeah, come on by. You got a place to stay. And I'll give you a tour and and all of that and have you have a lot of fun here in Southern California and meet a lot of the folks that you've seen in some of these videos. Sounds good. Hopefully listeners have enjoyed today's episode and the interviews. I think it has been fascinating and insightful. I want to give a big thank you to Eric Stoller for taking the time to chat with us. Really appreciate that. Yeah. And of course, special thanks as well to Deborah Parsons and Michael Harrison. And Remember, for anyone out there, we are always looking for ideas. We love your feedback. You can find myself and Matt on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You can find this podcast uh, 
at, at advising podcast on Twitter. Um, we would love for you to, to leave a review, subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. We will be back again on the first Monday in March, which is the 2nd of March. And in the interim, I am going to take a trip to India. What have you got coming up, Matt? Oh, I'm not flying anywhere. So I'll be here. So um, probably while you're in India, I'll be meeting with a lot of students. Okay, so it'll be hot and sunny in both locations. Oh, yeah, it's always perfect weather here in California. So I hear, so I hear. Well, listen, look forward to episode five. All right, we'll see you then. Don't want a complication.